On today's episode, we dive into a comedy show that dared to break many of the rules we take for granted. A large ensemble cast, a single location, and the whole thing takes place over just one night. We'll be talking with a writer and story editor soon, but for now, listeners, get your best party clothes on. We're going out tonight and getting some shots of mixology. That's the girl who dumped you? She's beautiful. You should see her on the inside. Hey, Tommy, we found a way out the back to the kitchen, okay? She'll never see us, so let's roll. Come on, come on. Guys, guys, relax. I'm just gonna... I'm just gonna go over there and say what's in my heart, and then we can all get on with our night. Wow. <laughs> what are you talking Come about, on. dude? Tommy, the first time you run into your ex after a breakup is an incredibly traumatic event, okay? You gotta rehearse and practice for months. You can't just go out there and wing it. We gotta go. She's gonna see us. Yeah. Shut up. What kind of guy runs away from his ex-girlfriend? Oh, I do it all the time. Me? Plus, look at her. She's got a cool new hairdo. Mm-hmm. Her skin looks amazing. This is a battle that Tommy cannot win right now. Please, chicks are all smoke and mirrors. That's probably not even her real boyfriend. Look, that's definitely not her real hair. Trust me, Tom, with a little bit of work, we can ruin this chick and it'll be great. Okay, listen, her hair is a weave, you're right. But before the three of us decide what Tommy's gonna do, me and this cat gotta do some recon. Let's okay. go. Why can't I just do it my way? Tom, you because have no way in this whatsoever. Idiot. Hi, my name's Shane Anderson, and this is One Season Wonders a show about the TV we left behind, taken off the air after only a single season, sometimes less. These are series that hundreds of creatives poured their hearts and souls into, only to have them cut down before the work could truly begin. Now, this is not a best-of list, and there will be no rankings or ratings on this show. My only hope is to bring to light some underseen gems to try and speak with some of the people who were there when they were made, and hopefully, in some small way, we can uncancel these little slices of wonder. So why don't we stretch out on the couch? And let's watch some TV. In the second half of October 2012, it was announced that superstar screenwriters John Lucas and Scott Moore would make their leap from feature films to television with a comedy show at ABC. Lucas and Moore were fresh off the 2009 smash hit movie The Hangover that they had both written, and some smaller successes before that with the Matthew McConaughey comedy Ghosts of Girlfriends Past and the Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn holiday comedy Four Christmases, a movie that this podcaster watches every year at Christmas. It's a family favourite. This new comedy show would be Moore and Lucas's first foray into television, and they were both so excited. Joking to Deadline, John Lucas said, We've been working in features for a while, and we couldn't be more excited to now bring our trademark brand of lame dialogue, thin characters, and gimmicky concepts to television. Moore added on, Television is definitely in a golden era, but with a little hard work, we think we can get that down to silver or bronze. While multiple networks had gone into a bidding war, the show ended up at ABC with a put-pilot commitment, and Moore and Lucas would be handling executive producing duties together. In February the following year, Ryan Seacrest Productions jumped on board as a joint partner and the show was well on its way to the national airwaves. Mixology tells the sprawling ensemble story of five women and five men who all came to the same bar over the course of one night. Some are looking for a long time thing, some are looking for a good time thing, and all of them are looking for moments that might change their lives forever. Each episode would focus on two or three characters, pairing up the entire ensemble with one another in increasingly interesting combinations so that the who's going to end up with who of it all becomes a much more interesting journey. 
Lucas and Moore described it as lost in a bar, referring to the main story going on, plus the inclusion of flashbacks to fill in the story details about all the various characters. Characters include Tom, a hopeless romantic fresh off a breakup who's been brought to the bar by his friends Bruce and Cal, supposed experts at picking up women at bars. Spoiler alert, they're not nearly as good as they think they are, and they're trying to get Tom to loosen up and find his confidence following his devastating breakup. There's Maya and Liv, two girlfriends, out on the town for a night of fun before Liv's engagement to a man named Jim becomes a sure thing. Maya is the more confident and guarded of the two, and she works to try and break Liv out of her sweet ingenue habits she's built up over the years. There's Ron, a British expat who used to be a millionaire, Casey, a happy-go-lucky waitress who's sleeping with her co-worker, Dominic, the very handsome himbo bartender, Jessica, a single mum with big dreams and a guarded heart, and Jessica's best friend, Fab, a high-rolling fashionista who travels the world, but whose glamorous life might not be all that glamorous. Day players in the show consist of random patrons, ex-partners, and a host of quirky characters who come and go throughout the night of the story, making for an increasingly chaotic night as the hours tick by to last drinks, where some people may find new friends, some may make life-changing decisions, and some might just find love after all. Finding 10 main cast members was quite the task, and while the process went off with nothing out of the ordinary, the role of Maya was originally played by Mercedes Masson, whom people might know from Chuck. However, she exited the project in March of 2013 and was soon replaced by Ginger Gonzaga. Some familiar faces among the cast are Blake Lee, whom a lot of people will know as April's gay boyfriend from Parks and Recreation, who plays Tom, Adam Campbell, the blonde Brit and a regular in the parody movie franchises Date Movie and Epic Movie, Aidan Canto, who had a small but notable role in the Kevin Bacon show The Following, as well as playing Sunspot in X-Men Days of Future Past. And then Vanessa Lenges, a Canadian actress who, at least for this podcast, was a standout in the gymnastics film Stick It. The pilot was directed by Larry Charles, the famed comedic director who collaborated with Sasha Baron Cohen on Borat, Bruno and The Dictator. Over the course of the rest of 2013, the show filmed 13 episodes, each titled by naming the romantic or unromantic pairing of the characters that episode would focus on. Mixology debuted on February 26, 2014 as a mid-season entry, scheduled for the 9.30pm slot behind the gargantuan hit show Modern Family. As the story usually goes, it debuted to then rather disappointing numbers. The pilot of Mixology ranked as ABC's lowest rated comedy premiere that season, and the third lowest overall for a Monday to Thursday comedy. The pilot would become the highest-watched episode of the show overall, as ratings dipped steadily over the course of the run. Even so, there was some small hope in a renewal. Mixology was among three of ABC's comedy shows on the cancellation bubble, a term for a show that could go either way depending on the specific week-to-week circumstances. The other shows were Trophy Wife and the second season of The Neighbours. A rumour reported in Deadline stated that, quote, the network and the studio already have put in place a leadership plan for next season, with creators John Lucas and Scott Moore set to take over the reins as showrunners from Ira Ungerleader. Mixology, despite low ratings, had quickly built a core fanbase and even had support from head of the network Paul Lee. But all the buzz and rumours couldn't save the show. 
That season, ABC opted to not renew any freshman comedy shows, and after 11 of the 13 episodes had aired, ABC cancelled the show. Frankie Shaw, who plays Fab, confirmed the cancellation soon after via Twitter, posting, quote, Sad day. Love to all you Mixology fans. Keep watching. Great episodes left, especially the finale. XO, 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 XO. ABC allowed the final two episodes to air as scheduled, and on the 21st of May, 2014, last drinks were called, signalling the end of the would-be comedy show. As usual, before we look at where the show and its creatives went after cancellation, we have an interview with someone who was involved in the making of this wonderful show. I'm pleased to say story editor and writer on Mixology, John Blickstead, was generous enough to let me interview him about the show. So without further ado, here's some of the story from someone who helped make Mixology happen. So I'm joined today by Mixology's story editor and co-writer of episode 10. Uh, You'll know his unbelievably talented work from Superstar, AP Bio, and the current hit show Ghosts on CBS, which just got renewed for a third season. So congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Please welcome now, if I'm to believe your Twitter bio, it's to be pronounced Joan Bleakstalk. (laughs) (laughs) No, you got it right the first time, I think. (laughs) John Blickstead, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Mixology. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for reaching out. It was a it's a treat to be able to revisit this uh, the show. I I find like my sort of saving grace with this show in like because I'm like a nobody from Australia, so I'm always like, oh, is, are these people, these really successful people, doing like the dream job ever going to want to talk to me? But I sort of bank on the fact that a lot of the times these shows are sort of like the one that got away, the ones that people sort of had a lot of fun with, and then it got cancelled, and now they're like, oh no, what do I do? So. <laughs> Well, number one, I'm a nobody from Toronto, Canada, and I know you're right. I mean, it's a show that, you know, had a little bit of attention, exactly a little bit of attention when it was on 10 years ago, and then it got a bit of a second life because it dropped on Netflix, but, and that led to a second round of conversations. But after that, I really haven't talked about the show in a long time and certainly haven't watched it. So it was fun to go back and rewatch some episodes. Oh, cool. Cool. So Mixology, can you talk about how you and your writing partner, Trey Colmer, got involved on the show? Yeah. I mean, there, there's something that used to happen that hasn't been happening for the last three or four years, just between the pandemic and the industry changing called staffing season, where, you know, over the summer as a writer, a lot of times you'll, you'll pitch your own ideas and the network's in the past would buy like 80 comedy ideas each and put those scripts in development. And then around January, they decide which of the pilots they actually want to make. And they might make, you know, eight of them. And then around uh, April, they'll make a decision. Okay. We're going to actually turn five of these into TV shows. And that's at every network. And those rooms are going to start up in June. So around like May, June, you know, you call up your agent and you say, okay, I'm interested in these shows. I've read the, I've read the pilots. I like them. Um, I mean, really you call them and just say, get me anything, please. And who am I? But, but you know, we would, I remember reading mixology and, and really loving it along with a couple of their pilots reaching out to our agent and saying, you know, we would just, you know, love to, to meet on this. It was also, you know, I was 29 at the time. So I was in the heyday of my, 
you know, bar going days. I was kind of the age of most of the characters roughly. So it just felt like it felt like a show that we could actually speak to in a, in a real way. So we, yeah, we, our agent sent, uh, uh, John and Scott, the creators are, are an original pilot that we had written. Um, they read it, agreed to meet with us. And we went to the, the production company was Ryan Seacrest productions who people might know from American Idol and other stuff. And so we went to this like E entertainment building where he had his offices, excuse me, met with those guys. We talked I remember talking a lot about lost because, you know, this show borrowed a lot from lost in terms of the, the flashbacks that, that, you know, we used to tell stories and, uh, you know, the kind of some of the serialization, I mean, we're not, I, I don't want to compare us. I've, I love Lost, so I'm not making a favorable comparison to Lost. But uh, but no, we talked a lot about that and just had a good meeting with those guys, talked about stories we'd had in bars. And then, um, yeah, and then they put a staff together of about, oh, I want to say about 10, 13 people. And, uh, and yeah, we were part of that. Story editor. Could you explain briefly to listeners who might not know what a story editor does on a TV show? You know, I think at some point it had a very specific set of responsibilities back in like the studio cinema days, but now it pretty much just means a, a writer, a junior writer on the writer staff. So to give a bit more con- context on that, you know, when someone gets a show on the air, when they've created a show, whether they're running it themselves or they've they've hired another executive producer who's a showrunner, they will then go and hire writing staff, which could be just a couple of people or it could be you know, in extreme cases, up to 20 people. And they'll hire, you know, people that are just starting out to people who have been, you know, in the business for for decades. And there's kind of like the army, this like series of uh, of titles um, rising from the, you know, the most junior to the, the most senior. So when you get hired first time as a writer, you are a staff writer. Um, and then the next level up is a story editor. And it basically just means, you know, you're there in the writer's room every day. You're pitching, you know, like every episode, you're all sort of like sitting there brainstorming, coming up with the episode ideas together, outlining stuff together. A lot of times, uh, you know, eventually you'll be assigned an episode that that you go and write, but you're not really in charge of anything. No one's really making you make any decisions. Uh, you know, and then from there it goes to executive story editor, uh, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer. And it's only when you get to sort of the top level of that that you're, you know, leading groups of people and making decisions and, you know, more involved in the production aspects of it, like, you know, casting or uh, stuff like that. Right, right, right. But uh, one of the things I like is that you were sort of there for the whole process, which is sort of um, a fascinating thing with this show because unlike a lot of shows, Mixology was sort of a, a bit of a unique one in terms of the challenges with like the single setting and the contained time frame. Could you talk a little bit about how yourselves and the other writers went about accomplishing that kind of narrative continuity that's really, really specific for this show that you don't get in a lot of other comedy shows? And also like how you, in your role as a story editor, juggled the um, the ensemble story format. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when we initially started on it, I thought of it as a real challenge, the fact that, this whole show, which we knew would be 13 episodes, at least for the first season, you know, that that was all going to be over the course of one evening and in one location. But, 
you know, having worked on other shows subsequently, I, I've kind of realized that it's it's actually helpful to have those constraints. You know, the, to me, the hardest show, like the very first show I worked on was basically a couple and their friend in New York City. So every episode could be anything. You know, it could be about them hosting a dinner party. It could be them deciding whether they want to have kids. It could be anything. This one, because it was a romantic comedy from the beginning, we knew that every episode, the A story was going to be, you know, a pair of people. Are they going to connect? Are there sparks? Either introducing a new couple or continuing an existing couple. So in that way, all you really had to do was kind of say, okay, what happened in this episode? What's the logical next step or the surprising next step in the next episode? I will say that it required a lot of planning in advance because, you know, some of the premise of the show really was romantic comedies have gotten a little bit tired or predictable. You know that if you see two um, actors on a poster, they're going to get together. What if we have 10 of these people? You can kind of introduce couples at the beginning and then surprise people by saying, oh, okay, you thought it was going to be these two getting together. What if it's these other two? Um, to accomplish that, it just took, you know, having this big whiteboard, episode one through 13, all of the characters listed, and just kind of map out who's going to connect when, who's going to meet when, and make sure that it feels um, feels believable. And then you wanted to balance that aspect of the storytelling without making it feel, you know, overly serialized, you know, have these like one-off stories where you can just have, you know, here's where Fab and Jessica run into a crying girl in the bathroom, or here's where, you know, Bruce and Tom and Cal have an interloper at their table, just so it doesn't <laughs> feel like it's overwhelmingly um, serialized and story-driven that you can have these just like interesting experiences that you might recognize in a one-off sense of like, okay, I've kind of seen that at a bar or here's like a different take on it. You know, on the, on the note of the topic of, you know, mixing and matching these, these potential romantic partners, that was something that we, we didn't expect how it would play out. I think we thought, you know, at the beginning, for example, you're going to establish Tom and Maya in the pilot as, you know, a potential couple. And then pretty quickly you'd say, but wait a second, Tom could be attracted to this other person or Maya could be attracted to this other person. Keeping in mind that when you go to a bar, yeah, you might talk with someone for five minutes, but then you might meet someone else and say, oh, I like them better. I think what we didn't anticipate was that even for the, the, the network reading drafts and ultimately for the audience, once you establish a couple on screen, if they've got chemistry together and you have people rooting for them, they're going to continue to root for them. So it's not always a fun, interesting surprise for them to suddenly start looking at someone else. It's like, wait, hold on. What is happening? I thought that these two liked each other. And now you're telling me to root for this other combination of people. So I think it was a little bit in that regard. What we ultimately made was a little bit less twisty than what we anticipated, just because even though I commented earlier on like the predictability of romantic comedies, that's some of what it is comforting is you want to be able to identify a couple up front, root for them and see them get together. And so it was balancing like predictable outcomes. You know, you definitely would have known from watching the first five minutes of the show that Tom and Maya are going to get together by the end of that season. How do you do that and give people the satisfaction they want, but also give them some surprises that are going to feel um, enjoyable rather than, you know, like you're pulling the rug out from under them? Yeah, yeah. I'm like an avid romantic comedy connoisseur and that's sort of the, th and I've written like a couple and that's the challenge because, you know, 
the destination is almost like set in stone. And if you change it, you have to be doing it for some sort of really fascinating, like my best friend's wedding or something like that, which yeah. is my fav- my favorite of all time. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's usually like making the journey sort of entertaining. I also just wonder like on the production side of things, because I was re-watching it um, leading up to this podcast and my production brain's going, God, there's extras in every single shot. <laughs> yeah, the ex- there was a lot. There was a lot of extras. That was always a lot to handle. I mean, it's funny because this show had some real production trade-offs. Other than the flashbacks, you'd never changed costumes. So that was very easy. You were, for the most part, in this one location. So that was very easy. We had to make a bit of an effort to to vary the look of that set because it could feel very claustrophobic. So, you know, we we tried hard to establish, you know, there's the balcony or there's the booth or there's you know, this other location within this, um, within this bar. But yeah, it was a lot of people keeping the, the noise down was funny. Cause you know, when you watch the show, it's this loud raucous bar, but when you're filming it, you want to have <laughs> your leads talking and everyone else is absolutely silent. Um, so it was always very weird to be like, have 50 people in the background and you know, they're all just sort of like silently Peas and carrots. Peas Moving their lips. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> watermelon, watermelon. So the episode uh, you two are crea- credited with writing, Liv and Jim, could you talk a little bit about your work on that one in particular? Because it sort of ta- comes later, much later into the show in round like episode 10. So by that time, were there any still any aspects that were challenging on the page or were there any characters that were just like a total breeze to write, for example? You know, at that point, you know, you're 10 episodes in the pattern had had been set pretty nicely. And at that point, we also knew where we were headed by the end of the season, for the most part. We had, we had a general sense of who was getting together, who wasn't getting together. Um, we knew we wanted Liv and her her fiancé to break up in the episode, Jim. So, so we had that. I mean, really the one sort of creative decision that we went back and forth on was what was the issue between Liv and Jim? Like what really was the reason for the breakup and and generally kind of came to this idea that they'd just grown in different directions that, you know, they were, they were two people that were getting comfortable in a relationship, getting comfortable in a relationship can be very good for some people and, and very bad for other people. And for Liv, she realized that it, it had kind of stunted her and, you know, they were just on these opposite um, trajectories. So you know, on a storytelling level, it, it wasn't super complicated. For me as a young writer, there were a couple of production issues that or a couple of lessons I took from it where, you know, I remember just writing jokes and it's so important to you that it gets executed exactly as you envision it. Because as a young writer, I just tended to be so precious about what I'd written. And I remember writing this joke where Liv's fiance had a TV that lifted out of the floor that was like a sign of his fixed ass and really like no story depended on this joe completely interchangeable with anything else and you know you go through these meetings with the production uh heads you know talking about how they're going to execute that and they've seemed really stressed out about this tv and they finally came to me and they said listen for us to get a tv to come out of the floor we would have to raise the set by about four feet so that we can get the TV. <laughs> and I think I said, all right, and how, how much would that cost? And then someone else kind of hit me and said, are you, are you an idiot? There's no way that's worth it for, for this one second joke. 
And then someone else said, well, we could probably put it in a cabinet and have it raised out of a cabinet. And I said, okay, that's, that's great. So I, I sort of took a lesson from that of, listen, if you can, it's great to want, you know, your writing to be executed as you envision it, but it's also important to be able to put on the producer's cap a little bit and, you know, not go for an extraordinary expense just because, uh, you know, for no reason. There was also another moment where we wrote uh, something, a joke about uh, Liv's uh, fiance giving a, an elderly woman a, a piggyback ride. Again, something we wrote into the script and never really thought about it again. And then on set, uh, the director came to us and said, we have auditions for the old woman. And I said, what do you mean auditions? I mean, all, it's, just, it's just like a two second shot of her, you know, having a piggyback ride with on Jim. And they said, no, we're going to have him come in. But no, we're going to have a guy from the crew come in and give a piggyback ride to all three of these ladies. And then you can pick. And I was like, no, no, please don't make me do that. Don't make me watch three 75-year-old women have a piggyback ride and then have me point. I'm not going to have an opinion on it. Just choose one. And then they actually did it. And I had a very strong opinion on which one I wanted. (laughs) And we chose her. But so that there were more just like, I, I definitely took lessons of like, oh, you really have to be conscious of how things get produced when you're writing them. But, you know, in terms of the show, I think it was really, it was pretty set. I'll, I'll say Bruce was a very easy character to write just because I feel like always like the, that brash, outspoken, say what you mean kind of character is is fun to write and, and pretty easy. Um, and Liv, I would say through the course of the series was my favorite to write just because I there was something about her her sweetness and her optimism that gets challenged but um and just her like her literal voice i just could hear her <laughs> voice always when i was i was writing and, and kate i think is just one of those extremely funny people where you can write a very flat line knowing that the way she's going to say it is going to be funny um uh adam who played ron i i would say is a similar thing where he just he just has like an interesting cadence and uh, you could give him something very, very unremarkable and he would put a spin on it that would make it sound much funnier than it was. We, we were very um, privileged with that cast because I thought they were all really fantastic. Oh, wonderful. That's so cool. I love um, uh, the, the uh, Bruce is like everyone knows someone exactly like that <laughs> person. Yeah. <laughs> It's so, it's so true. Yeah, it's so true. He's, yeah. Some of them are great. Some of them are not so great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so through your career to date, you've had a couple of shows that I've canceled after ones. Like, because I, I make these lists. How dare things. you? <laughs> How dare Some you point sh- that out? <laughs> Some of these shows are like, because uh, I have to Google these lists to find stuff to, I mean, I have like a bunch of shows that I've already watched. And I have like a shelf full of DVDs. Um, yeah. Uh, but then I sort of, want to get others that I watch specifically for the podcast. So you've had some canceled after one season. In addition, you've had some, you know, massive hit shows that have gone on much longer or even like had a full proper run. How do you navigate those like career ups and downs? I guess like when a show doesn't hit, what's, what's the the way of dealing with it or coping with it um, emotionally as you kind of figure out moving on to the next one? Early on, I found it very tough because I, I never considered myself very entrepreneurial or much of a self-starter i was someone that you know you go through 
school and there's a lot of structure for you. And, you know, right out of college, I worked at a, a television company, but very much on the business side of things. So it was a very corporate environment. And, and I actually, I think I am mo I most naturally thrive in those kind of structured environments. And then getting out to, to LA where you have these jobs that can last like 10 weeks, 20 weeks, 40 weeks. Um, it was scary. And, and I had really high hopes for some of the early projects. You know, there was a, the first show that I worked on was called best friends forever. I remember going to the premiere party and Trey, my writing partner and I were guessing what the ratings would be for the night, which these numbers might not even mean anything in the absolute, but I think we said, okay, I think we're going to get like a, a two five rating. And then it came in the next day and it was a one, two. So it was less than half of what I had expected. And then it was pulled from the air after four episodes. And it was really crushing because I was like, this is my first job. Like I thought this was going to be like, it, there's so much struggle to get the job. I thought then it would be easy. Not really, but I thought, I thought there would be more of an upward trajectory. And, and I just, the, the roller coaster was really difficult. And I think what, in the early days, especially what really helped was just making sure we always had our own projects going on, you know? So we have our staff jobs, which is really my favorite thing to do. But on top of that, you know, we're pitching pilots. We're trying to, yeah, we're trying to sell pilots. We're writing specs of our own, just trying to stay busy. Cause I think you end up having a lot of time here off and you've got to be able to fill it or, or you start to feel kind of useless. And then as the years went on and, you know, I got to understand, okay, some shows work, some shows don't, um, I don't think I got, ever got less excited about the individual projects, but I was able to have a more global perspective on, okay, this one didn't work. I'll, I'll look for the next one, but it's still really, it's still disappointing when it happens. You know, I've, I've had shows recently that I, I, I worked on one on Netflix called huge in France, which I love. I love that show. I thought it was brilliant. Um, you know, we made it, we made, I think it was eight episodes we asked Netflix for the the ratings and they couldn't give them to us, <laughs> but they said they could give us a, a, um, a qualitative descriptor of the viewership. And they said it was microscopic. And I thought, <gasps> oh, oh no, no. you're really not pulling a punch on that one. Oh uh, no. So that, that one was a real disappointment, but also there's satisfaction in just making something good. The worst is when something's bad and short lived. Right. But you know, Huge and Brants was one where I said, oh, this was, you know, we made something great. Not a lot of people saw it, but I'm really proud of it. My friends who did see it really enjoyed it. Oh, that's good. It's a funny, it's a funny world because these days, especially on, on, you know, streaming, so you can have like a giant hit show and they're like, ah, and it's canceled and we're yeah. going to get rid of it completely. <laughs> I've, I, um, yeah. the, one of my other episodes, I was talking to an editor for this NBC show called Allegiance and... I thought it had been available over there, but they just completely like it's nowhere now. And it's sort of like, what do you do with it? Like that sort of, I guess that's got to cut a little hard. So it's, yeah, yeah I've had that with a couple of our shows where I've looked later to see if I could download an episode or two and they've just been nowhere. And I guess sometimes now, excuse me. I mean, now we're seeing a lot with Max, how they're just removing stuff all over the place to, for write-offs, which you know, part of me, again, understands that there's there's a business to this and we all benefit yeah. from the business side of it. But uh, God, it's heartbreaking, especially, I mean, 
not to take a huge tangent, but for those projects that never got to see the light of day, I mean, what a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole sort of spate of shows from like 2010 through to like 2016 where streaming had sort of come into it. And so there's not that many DVD releases of things like Mixology. I had to, um, I have a, uh, an Apple TV unit that's rigged up to think it's in America. Perfect. Uh, and so then I just, I have to like do this convoluted buying American iTunes cards to then purchase it, then put on an account and then I buy the show and then I, and then I can watch it on the, on, on there. So hopefully they don't delete it off there, but see some, some of these shows, it's the only way to sort of get a hold of them. It's funny on my, uh, my sister-in-law gave me her original lost DVDs, which were Australian coded. So huh? I think originally I had some sort of like Australian DVD player or something that allowed <laughs> me to watch those early seasons of Lost. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So that's all my big questions. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Uh, I usually like to end on a little fun one. Do you, you know, since this show is about finding uh, cool little one season shows more people should watch, do you have any favorite one season shows as a viewer or even stuff you've worked on that you wish more people knew about? Yeah, I mean, I already threw out Huge in France, which is, again, a Netflix show that stars um, a guy named Gad Elmaleh, who is a hugely famous comedian in uh, in France. And, and we did a show where he comes to America and has kind of a dark adventure. Um, so I'd recommend <laughs> that for sure. But of the ones that I've, I've watched and not worked on, um, I'll say one maybe obvious one and one less obvious one. For the obvious one, um, Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. was a show that I was obsessed with and still think is one of the greatest comedies or other show, you know, just one of the greatest shows of all time. Um, I mean, so many amazing people came out of that show, but it was so funny. It was so specific. It was so heartbreaking. I remember there was that episode where they think um, one of the characters, uh, one of the children thinks his dad is is cheating and they drive around the neighborhood with this um, garage door opener that they found and then and eventually opens someone else's home and they realize oh that's that's who my dad is cheating on my mom with and it was just like this brutal moment in this you know brilliant comedy so that's one uh a network one that i really love is a show called ben and kate that starred okay. nat faxton Paxson and um dakota johnson Oh wow! And Lucy, Lucy Punch, and um, got it. The uh, one other guy that whose name I forget, but uh, Ben and Kate were. I forget if it was based on a if it was a format from another country, but um, it was brother and sister. He was kind of like a wacky inventor type, and and it was just this like very sweet, very small, low concept show. But I, I thought it was great. Oh, wonderful. I haven't heard of that one. I made, I've made a note. I'm going to check that one out. Yeah. That sounds cool. Check it out. I, I don't know if it holds up, but um, but yeah, I love that. I'll say, now this is, I don't think this is a show got, that got canceled, but as I'm speaking to an Australian, I know it's complicated now, but Summer Heights High was one of my favorite shows of all time. Yes. Yeah. Definitely made some choices that that shouldn't <laughs> have been made, but um, on a on a comedy level, I, I mean, might be one of those. My one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's he, Chris Lilly's stuff, like the the problematic stuff aside, like to me, his two best characters were Mr. G and Jamey. Um, yeah. And because Mr. G, he created it for, we had this sketch comedy show called Big Bite 
that like years and years earlier, which I, we like my whole family would sit down every night and watch the, the show. And I was always fascinated as to why he didn't spin off Mr. G into his own show because he spun off Jamae and then he spun off um, yeah. Jonah from Tonga into shows. But Mr. G was like my favorite character because he was just the most insane, like unhinged person. Oh my God. I mean, the cold open where he's um, doing different drills. He's doing like, there's a... There's like a animal in the school. There's like a pedophile in the school. There's yeah. a fire. I mean, and a dance that he does, like the interpretive <laughs> dance that he does. Every the best thing to watch in the world are those um, just outtakes from like outtakes yeah. from the show where he's dancing and just the the kids that are playing extras can't stop laughing. Yeah, it's, it's it's so like good. when they're playing, he's playing like "Thank God You're Here," which is sort of I don't know if you guys had that format over there. Um, but and he walks, he's playing it with the kids and he's like, thank God you're here. Where have you been, bitch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the kids are like, you can like, even on the takes they use, the kids are trying their hardest not to just absolutely break out in laughter. It's, it's really fun to watch. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. It's a really good, we can be heroes too. I, I like some rights. I bet <laughs> oh, yes. the woman, the woman who's rolling across Australia. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. It's so funny. <laughs> John, thank you so much for joining us for this and sharing all these wonderful production stories. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really, really wonderful. I mean, it's, it's as I say, it's a show that I really um, enjoy working on. Uh, John Lucas and Scott Moore were great to work for. And um, yeah, I really had, uh, had fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Since Mixology was cancelled, John Lucas and Scott Moore went on to write and direct the smash hit Bad Mums films. Actor Adam Campbell went on to star in the short-lived but deeply funny show Great News. Ginger Gonzaga went on to star in many TV shows including I'm Dying Up Here, Space Force and Marvel's She-Hulk Attorney at Law. And Blake Lee starred in the show Fam and I would be remiss if I didn't note a personal favourite of mine, the Lifetime Christmas movie starring alongside his real-life husband Ben Lewis called The Christmas Setup, also starring Fran Drescher, which has become an annual rewatch in this podcaster's house. And our guest today, John Blickstead, went on to write for many shows, including Cooper Barrett's Guide to Surviving Life, The Great Indoors with Joel McHale, Huge in France on Netflix, and the hit shows AP Bio and Ghosts on CBS. While there was no physical media release, Mixology is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon in the US, but is unfortunately no longer available in Australia. Mixology was a wonderful little show that swung for the fences with its concept, and while it didn't find an audience, we here at One Season Wonders hope some more people discover it down the line. Television shouldn't be limited to one way of telling a story. There's room for all sorts of unique and exciting takes on the episodic format, and Mixology deserves its place in that little history of the medium. Thank you all for listening to One Season Wonders. If you are someone or know someone who's worked on a One Season Wonder, feel free to reach out at oneseasonpod at gmail.com. We'd love to find more artists to talk to for future episodes. We'll be back next time with a brand new or rather old show that deserves its dues. This podcast has been written, produced, edited and narrated by Shane Anderson and produced by Zane C. Webber of That's Not Canon Productions. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at oneseasonpod and you can follow me on Twitter at ShaneM underscore Anderson. So that's that. Until the next episode, goodbye.